Hi, and welcome to season one of the Mental Fitness Podcast with me, Anthony Taylor. This is the podcast where we look at what it takes to be mentally fit. That intersection between mental toughness, emotional intelligence, and good mental health. We interview some of the best people from the sporting, business, and psychological worlds to bring you the stories and suggestions on how to build your mental fitness. Here's a snapshot of what we've got in store for you this week. Something to look forward to, something to reward yourself for. It's about having hope, if you like, for the for the future. However bad things get, if there is a particular kind of plum cake that you absolutely adore and you've got be you carry a bit of it with you and it always reminds you of being, you know, by the fire at home, warm and loved, um, and it always gives you a lift, then then that's you know, that's what some people take. Uh, other people might take, you know, chocolate raisins. Usually it is food, I have to say. So if you like what you hear over the rest of this episode, then please join the conversation with me on Instagram at anttaylor72 or on LinkedIn where you can find me under Anthony Taylor Mental Fitness. And please subscribe. It takes just a minute but it's going to help the podcast reach more people. Okay, let's crack on with the show. I'm really looking forward to my guest on today's show. She is a top psychologist. She's got a fascinating history of working with some athletes in a one of the world's most grueling races. And she has her own consultancy as well, where she works with organisations all around the world on what she describes as cognitive fitness. And she, she has a business, the Cognitive Fitness Consultancy. So welcome, Fiona Beddows-Jones. Well, thank you very much, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining me today. So Fiona, I'm going to start off with a question. As you know, in series one, we're really looking at what is mental toughness. So what does mental toughness mean to you? Well, it's a fascinating question because I expect that every guest you have on the show is going to have a slightly different, uh, slightly different spin on, on what they think mental toughness is. And it's interesting. Language is so important. You know, we talk about mental toughness um, as if toughness is always strength, as if it's always about being strong. And sometimes I think that mental toughness uh, is about being soft and it's about being gentle and it's about being kind to ourselves and forgiving ourselves and others. And yes, of course, it is about being strong and uh, thinking in the right ways at the right time with strength, but it's also about flexibility, agility, and, you know, sometimes we need to accept and forgive ourselves and pick ourselves up and carry on from a position of love and care rather than beating ourselves up, which some people do. They see um, talking to themselves strongly. You know, their inner critic is quite critical and they say, you know, come on, get up, be tough, you can do this. And that works for some people and uh, it doesn't work for everybody. Sometimes we need to be be accepting and forgiving and have a, a generosity of, of spirit where we can uh, love ourselves strong. I think you're absolutely spot on with that. And it's funny, isn't it? You said language is so important. And I think the term mental toughness, in my experience, tends to conjure up quite strong views in other people. You know, some people quite embrace it. Some people sort of rail against it and and perhaps have the mindset of a lot of the fallacies around it. Like you said, it's all about, you know, uh, macho and sort of 
big biceps and balls, as I sometimes call it. Um, and it's, you're absolutely right. It's not that. What do you think would be a better term for it then? <laughs> well, um, of course, I'm going to say cognitive fitness. <laughs> so go on, tell me more about that then. What, you know, you, you talk about cognitive fitness. Is it the same as mental toughness in your mind? Is it, is it the same as mental fitness as I see it? Or is it something different? I, I think there are enormous similarities. Um, I think for, for me, the way I talk about cognitive fitness is that it's about thinking in the right ways at the right time with flexibility, agility and strength. Um, so when you're using different strategies to think in the right way with flexibility, you know, sometimes you might be thinking strategically. Um, sometimes you might be thinking more in detail and operationally. Um, you might be thinking backwards and forwards through time and over time. So learning lessons from the past that you can bring into the present, but also thinking, you know, what are we going to be doing or how do we need to think in a week? And how is that going to be different or similar to how we need to think in a month and then three months and then six months, you know, and maybe a year, five years, 25, even 50 years out. So, so that's what I mean by flexibility, you know, people being able to use different strategies and look at, look at situations through other people's eyes, for example, is another example of, um, of, of flexibility. Um, and then in terms of agility, it's about speed of response. Um, it's about uh, having self-awareness. You know, when is the way that we're thinking the appropriate way? And when do we need to be agile enough to be able to switch and switch quickly? Um, what alternative scenarios do we need to consider? And of course, um, state management is so important. Um, and it's important, um, not just in COVID, in terms of how we keep ourselves mentally um, fit and healthy and thinking in the right ways, um, but how we how we also manage our um, physical selves as well as our emotional um, selves. So that's what I mean by by state management, and um, and I, and I see that as sort of sitting in the in the agile um, pillar, if you like, of uh, of, of cognitive fitness. Um, and I've spoken a little bit about strength already. Um, courage, having the courage to lead. Um, I think is uh, is important in terms of uh, mental toughness because we have to learn to lead ourselves um, and we have to learn to lead ourselves some other people choose to follow and that's you know whether particularly um, you know if you're in sports um, and I'm thinking here a little bit about the spine race we can talk a bit more about that later um, you know you are an individual and, and whilst you might um, spend time with other competitors and even sort of compete in a team you know individually you have to have the courage to lead yourself and what we uh, do ourselves we give other people permission to do so leading ourselves um, in a way that is is comfortable for us that we feel is appropriate that's aligned with our own belief and values um, and that shows us in our best light as our best self so that we can be a role model, not just for colleagues, but for our partners, for our children, uh, for the rest of our family and for our friends. You know, I really do think that's so important. So, you know, I see, I see strength um, um, and having, having courage as a, as, as a, as a key part of, uh, of mental toughness. Um, and as I said before, that vulnerability 
um, and the generosity of spirit, the acceptance of ourselves um, that we are only human. We're not perfect. We do make mistakes. You know, I, I, I was late for this podcast, for example, because uh, I was running a little bit late and, um, and I let you know and you very generously said no problem, which I knew you would say, you know, because that's the kind of person that you are, you know, um, and, and I think that's uh, it. To know that someone has got your back really, really helps. It really helps. It helps you. It helps them. Um, and it makes you it makes you a tougher team, makes you a more resilient, stronger, flexible team. So thank you. No, not at all. I think you're absolutely right about that kindness piece. And you talked there about, you know, when someone's got you, having someone having your back is really important. And I think perhaps we many of us forget about having our own backs. And I think you alluded to that. You talked quite openly about that, about being that kind to yourself, not beating yourself up. We are human. Um, you know, we do put a lot of pressure on ourselves um, and, and we beat ourselves up. And, you know, I think the world's quite happy to do that for us. So we need to start with some of that self-kindness that you talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to add something to that. You know, I, I do a lot of uh, coaching. I do a lot of sort of executive coaching and life coaching. Um, and I am, I am, to be honest, I am shocked sometimes at the way that people speak to themselves. They would not speak to their best friend like that. They would not speak to their partner or their children or me like that. They wouldn't speak to anybody else like that other than themselves. And they are really tough on themselves, unnecessarily so, um, I think. Uh, now, some people find that, that speaking critically to themselves helps. But the, for the vast majority of people, it's um, it's either a short-term strategy that works or it's a strategy that really doesn't work at all. So for me personally, you know, the voice in my head is my best friend. They're there to help me. They're there to support me. They're there to, to make suggestions. Uh, they're there to tick me off if I get it wrong. They're there to suggest, well, actually, that wasn't a very good idea. <laughs> Perhaps you'd better not do that again next time. Um so, but, you know, I, I listen to people and I think I'm very lucky. I, I don't beat myself up, generally speaking. It's something I very rarely do because I don't find it helpful. Um, so I don't do it. I don't see the point of doing it. And I encourage other people to, uh, to find a, a different, kinder, more loving and accepting way of speaking to themselves. I love what you said there. So a couple of questions for you. One is, begin with, is why do you think we do that? Is this just a quirk of of human psychology is it is it a case of nurture or is it a case of nature you know are we born with this or is it a case of you know nurturing that, that we've been this kind of thing is developed from how we've been brought up i have a feeling that we learn it and i think we learn it from well-meaning parents um, who don't want us to make the same mistakes that they do or that, that they have we learn it from teachers we learn it from friends um we probably will pick up a lot from television programs or radio programs, things that we listen to. Um, so I have, I'm, I'm not sure, I can't think of any research off the top of my head that's been done in terms of how it develops. Um, but I, 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 I should very much think that it is um, an, an environmental, um, environmental nurture thing rather than rather than something we're born with. Um, we, we are certainly, or most people are, there are a few people I think who don't have a, a, you know, a voice in their heads. 
but you know for the main part a lot of us do and you know when I'm when I'm running authentic leadership sessions for example you know when I when when we're talking about um, having an inner voice some people have many voices in their heads so they might carry their grand one of their grandparents around with them for example or they might hear their father or they might hear their mother or they might um, if they're particularly resourceful there might be someone that they admire in history um, who they have incorporated you know into the the group of people who give them advice and support and they might you know imagine what they would say to them so we don't you know we don't always have uh, one voice in our head we can have we can have advice from and, and support from many people if we choose to um, and that's again a degree of resourcefulness um, and uh, and flexibility that, that we can learn to develop and is that how you talked a, a moment ago about how your voice in your head is a supporting voice? Has it always been that case or have you is that something you've actively uh, cultivated and how, how do you go about that? I think I think it has. I think it has always been a supporting voice, actually. Yes. Um, for some reason, I'm a twin, so I have never been alone. You know, even in the womb, I wasn't alone <laughs> Uh, and I've got a I've got a twin brother, and um, you know I I think he's we we've always been very different, um, and while we're close, you know I, he was always quite quick I think you know to sort of criticise me not not that I really remember it in a bad way, but just you know. I think we both rolled our eyes each other, at each other quite a lot when we were young. You know, he would do something that I thought was a bit silly. I would do something that he thought was a bit silly. Um, so, yeah, I honestly don't know the answer to the question, sort of, you know, where does it, where does it come from, from me? But, yeah, the voice I have in my head has always been positive and supportive. Um, you know, I, there are plenty of other people who can, um, can criticise me if they want to. Um, I'm not about to start doing it to myself. <laughs> I don't see the point. <laughs> why would I do that? <laughs> well, it's a great question. Why do? Why would we do that? Yeah, so many, yeah, yeah, yeah but so yeah. many of us do. So many of us do. And I think you're right about the the nurture bit. Um, I see this so often when working with clients around imposter syndrome. When we look about where that comes from, you know, even the most well intentioned, most supportive parent, sometimes it's an off the cuff comment. Um, my own mum said something to me when we were driving down the road when I was about 11 or 12 and it wasn't at me as, a, as an individual my traits it was about something um, but that belief system stuck in my head and really challenged me for 30 odd years and, and had an effect on my life and it was actually it was about money it was about money and being rich and, and all those things and I took a lot of training to undo some of that belief around that that was kind of holding me back so what what steps do you think people can take to make that inner voice more friendly where what do we do well, it's, it's really useful to speak to someone who genuinely cares about you, you know, a best friend, that can be very helpful, provided that the best friend isn't super critical. <laughs> we can't expect our partners to also be our coaches. So, you know, I think in an ideal world, we, we'd all have a coach or a mentor, you know, or a, or a, a, a number of friends that we can speak to. 
um, and we can perhaps get them to help us out and sometimes untangle some of the knots that we're in. Um, of course, you know, coaches are qualified. Um, I'm a, a chartered occupational psychologist. You know, I've done uh, quite a lot of uh, training and I'm an NLP master practitioner. Um, and, you know, actually being able to, there's a, there's a technique in NLP that some of you, um, some of your listeners might have come across called parts work. It's fantastic. It's it's uh, <clears throat> if you ever read the comic that had the numbskulls in it. Um, no, I'm showing my age now. I think we're about the same age. Anyway, the numbskulls were a cartoon, um, and they were people in this in this little boy's in this little chap's head. There was a, a person in there, a part of him responsible for his eyesight. There was a part of him responsible for, you know, his eating habits. There was a part of him responsible for, for his behaviour at work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and parts work is a bit like that. You know, you, you, you relax. Um, it's not um, hypnosis or anything, but you just sort of you just sort of put yourself in a relaxed state, take some deep breaths, um, usually close your eyes. Um, and then you just effectively go inside um, and and talk directly to the parts of you that are responsible for keeping you well and healthy. Right, that's interesting. Yeah, you may find that there's that there's more than one. Um, we, you don't need to go into detail. You just assume that they're there and that they have your best interests at heart. Um, and that they have a positive intention for you. So you start by exploring what that positive intention might be. Um, and if the positive intention, um, the positive intention will always be to keep you safe, always. I can give you a spine race example. Um, so uh, the spine race is an ultra endurance marathon um, up the full length of the Pennine Way in January carrying everything you need to survive there's an easier one in june um but uh, you know the real the real spine race if you like is uh, is is in january um and it's not a staged race there are cutoff times um so everybody starts sort of at the same time and then it's up to you how you manage to sort of get up the pennine way obviously walking running you can't uh, you can't take a vehicle or a, a bicycle it's all under your own steam and I was coaching a chap and, uh, and this was before the race. He was having some niggles with his training and he couldn't quite understand why he was having these niggles with his training. He'd never had niggles before. Um, you know, they were sort of like, you know, little injuries, nothing serious, but, you know, just enough for him to not quite be able to perform at his best. And so, you know, we had a conversation about talking to the parts of him responsible for, for keeping him safe. And their positive intention with the niggles was to give him a get out clause if he needed it on the race, because, you know, that would mean that he had a bit of a niggle. It would be perfectly acceptable for him to, to, uh, to drop out of the race because, you know, there was something properly physically physically wrong with him um you know that he couldn't uh, that he couldn't overcome um and rather than sort of you know having to push through it he would be able to to sort of justify to himself that uh, that he could stop so that was the positive intention the positive intention was to keep him safe but of course actually he wanted 
them to find a different way of keeping him safe that enabled him to, you know, still be fully aware of everything that was going on for him physically and emotionally that didn't result in physical niggles that was causing him problems. So what was the outcome of that? Was it a single conversation and how did he go on in the race? It was a number of conversations. Um, The conversation that we had, you know, about the niggles and about the positive intention and about all of the parts of him, you know, that wanted to keep him safe uh, and enable him to have such a good, you know, had an enjoyable time on the race, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So that was just one conversation. And then, you know, there were some follow up conversations about, you know, how is he getting on? Um, and uh, you know what did he learnt about himself, and and uh, what 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 was what were his uh, what was what was the voice in his head you know saying now how was he feeling etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know we had had a few more conversations about that. Um, but it, it, parts work is uh, is is a fascinating subject, and you know when I have never come across someone who hasn't been able to connect with some important part of themselves it is actually quite easy to do when somebody feels safe. So, you know, as a, as a coach, um, it's, it's my job to keep them, um, you know, to keep them safe emotionally and psychologically, you know, in the time that we're speaking and and then afterwards as well. So it's, uh, it's it's very rewarding because people are fascinating and they are a lot stronger and a lot more resilient and a lot more creative than, than, you know, we think they can be and they think they can be. I was interviewing uh, another guest the other day for the podcast and she said the same thing. She's got quite a, a horrific story. Um, and But she'd said that, she kindly sent me a copy of her book and in the front she wrote that pretty much exactly what you said, which I've just got it here actually, which was, we are all so much stronger than we think we are. And that, that's, uh, you know, it's a great comment. And you, you talked about the spine race. Thank you for bringing it up. Because that's how I came to get to know you, isn't it? My dad uh, did a lot of support as a doctor for some of the competitors. But you've been around the spine race for a while now, haven't you? I think you've, several years you've been uh, tracking some of the, um, you know, the competitors, working with them, researching what it takes to be able to complete that absolutely enduring race. Tell me what are some of the things that you've, you've found from, from studying these people? I think well, the first spine race that I was, uh, I was a part of, um, I think was in uh, 2012. And uh, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of these races have sports psychologists, but they don't sort of have, they don't have occupational psychologists and, and, um, and coaches from sort of that perspective. Um, so I was invited to come on board and, <laughs> it's um oh it's a it's a family um it's it's a bubble that that you're in um there are three kinds um of person who um enter the spine race and actually finish it because a lot of people enter and very few finish the first type of person is very very competitive they are driven, they are focused, they are independent, they want to win, um, they want to conquer the elements and they want to beat other people and they race. They actually race. You know, it's called a spine race uh, and they do race because they want to come first. And some of them, uh, you know, will say things like, you know, nobody remembers the person who came second and all that sort of stuff. You know, they are highly, highly, highly competitive. Um, the second type of person is uh, very laid back and relaxed. They're very self-sufficient. 
they are very emotionally stable. They like their own company. Uh, they enjoy all different kind of weathers. And sometimes the weathers can be, you know, horrendous, you know, snow, sleet, rain. And of course, people run through the night as well. You know, you have to do your night nav navigation as well as your day navigation because we're in January. Days are short. Um, you're, you spend more time actually running in the dark than you do during the day. Um, anyway, these second type of people, they, uh, they enjoy their own company. They like the whole event. They're not competitive with other people so much as, um, you know, they're competitive with themselves. You know, they'd like to they'd like to finish quicker than they did last year. But they recognize that it depends on the weather um, and it depends on conditions. And, and you know, they're, they're, they're very flexible. As I say, they're laid back and relaxed. The bizarre thing um, and. Uh, it's mainly men because it's mainly men that actually compete in the spine race. There, there are there are some women, but there are a lot fewer of those. Um, bizarrely, they are often all tall and lanky with beards. Now, <laughs> anyone who's actually been on the spine race and supported it or entered it will, will be laughing, and they'll know exactly what I mean. Um, it is it is very very strange. They are they they they're, they're tall and lanky. The third type of person, and this is the majority of people, actually, they are very, they're very sociable. They like to be with other people. So they form groups um, and teams easily. They will usually uh, run or, or, or walk with someone else. And, you know, joiners and leavers, you know, in the sense of, uh, of, of groups, you know, they, they might go off on their own for a bit and then buddy up with somebody else. Um, or they might uh, decide to stay with uh, one or two particular people throughout the whole race. They are, they have more highs and lows than the other two types of person because they are not as independent. They're not as independent-minded. They are more sociable, so they rely on the company really that they have with uh, that they have with other people. And is there any, when looking and identifying these kind of groups of people, is there anything that you've noticed about whether one group tends to do better than the other in, in outcomes, in terms of finishing the race or? Well, the people who enjoy it the most are the, are the second type, the laid back, relaxed and self-sufficient. Um, they are more likely to finish because they are emotionally more stable. You know, they are unaffected by being on their own because they, you know, they like their own company. So, for example, you know, if if you are a sociable person, um, you might wait for the, the buddy that you came into the checkpoint with. You might wait for them to be ready before you go off together again. And that's absolutely fine. You know, that's a good strategy to use if that's the strategy you want. But they could be running half an hour late. Well, that's cost you half an hour. You know, the second type of person wouldn't wait for anyone. When they're ready, they go. You know, when they want to sleep or when they've decide, decided to sort of stop and bivy, um, you know, then they'll do it. I suppose in terms of numbers, in terms of numbers of people finishing, the sociable people, there are more of those, but there are more of those who've entered. Interesting. Okay. And I noticed that you've done, you've done a paper, um, which I'm going to be able to make available to people listening to the podcast is a, a fantastic PDF that you've done. And you've identified in that the whole wealth of success strategies from finishers. Um, I just want to pull out a couple of those, if I may, and we'll talk about them in the context of, of mental toughness. One is around having a daily treat to look forward to. 
in mental toughness, we talk about the, the four C's. So there's control, which is made up about life control, emotional control, and then commitment. It's about that goal setting bit and doing whatever you can to achieve those goals. That for me seems to fit into that bit, doesn't it? About having something to look forward to, setting a goal and yeah, yeah, something to look forward to, something to reward yourself for. It's about having hope, if you like, for the for the future. However bad things get, if there is a particular kind of plum cake that you absolutely adore and you've got a be you carry a bit of it with you and it always reminds you of being, you know, by the fire at home, warm and loved, um, and it always gives you a lift, then then that's you know, that's what some people take. Uh, other people might take, you know, chocolate raisins. Usually it is food, I have to say. Well, I can imagine if you're running through that kind of length, absolutely. Other things I thought was interesting as well was around um, mentally visualising everything. What, what can we take as everyday people? If we think ourselves as corporate athletes rather than perhaps, say, physical athletes, what can we take from that and apply it? How can we apply that in our daily lives? Well, mental visualisation um, for spine race competitors is, is all part of the preparation because anything can happen and also it's 268 miles and people because they train during the year for the race they visualize the terrain and they imagine it in all different weathers as part of their preparation um in terms of being corporate athletes it's really useful um you know to visualize the conversations that you're going to have with people i often visualize proposals and reports um, I, I visualise them finished, um, you know, even though they're not. Um, and sometimes I only visualise the front page of them, you know, as a metaphor for, for, for the finished report. I used to be my, my I used to be a handbag designer. That was uh, that was what I did at college. I, I studied leather goods um, uh, and leather accessories. And, you know, for me, the process of designing a psychometric um, test, for example, is the same as designing a handbag. I visualise the finished item and then I just create what I see. Fantastic. So you think that more of us could be using mental, and I know a lot of athletes use it in many settings, you think that more corporate athletes, the rest of us, can be making more of visualisation as a technique to support our mental toughness, mental fitness, cognitive fitness? I, I quite like to collect visual pictures uh, you know, whether that is on Facebook or social media um, or whether it is um, me with my camera, you know, taking a picture of a um, of a tree or a or a path that sort of goes that goes by a tree. I, I, I rather like paths because that's a metaphor for me for a sort of a journey, life's journey. So I think if we if we use pictures that give us a lift that would be helpful for people. It could be a picture of someone you love. So if I was to say to you, Anthony, just take a moment to visualise in your head the person that you love the most at this at this moment in time. Yep. Okay, do you feel better? Yes, I do. Have a nice kind of warm feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, if times are tough at work, or if we're having a bit of a dip, or if we just want to give ourselves a lift, just taking a moment to remind ourselves of the face of someone that we love or someone we know loves us 
can make us feel better. It can help us get through a difficult or boring meeting, for example. Now, now not everybody is visual. Some people find visualisation quite difficult. So for them, they might need to imagine a feeling, you know, imagine um, holding a hand or stroking an arm or, and, you know, a, a, a hug or something like that. Um, but it's, it's still the power of imagination and, uh, and it, it's still very useful. So what are the, what maybe one other success strategy that you've identified in these athletes do you think that we could consider using in our everyday lives? Well, there's two, actually. The first one is sense of humour and the second is forgiveness. So, you know, we've, we've spoken a little bit about forgiveness, about learning the lesson uh, and letting it go and being kind to ourselves. We've spoken to that already. So the other thing I would say is sense of humour. Retain a sense of humour. It's so important because the people on the spine race, for example, and and a lot of people in daily lives, we're under so much stress and pressure. Um, It is very difficult. You know, some people are exhausted. I was speaking to a, a girlfriend in the NHS. She's got a very stressful job. She is absolutely exhausted and it's Wednesday. She's got another two days to get through. So having a sense of humour means that those people rather than being sort of energy vampires and emotional vampires they don't they don't they don't suck the energy from other people even when they are their lowest point they still give energy um to to others uh, and take it from others as well you know when it's when it's offered and given by by retaining their sense of humor even if even if the sense of humor can sometimes be a bit dark yeah i'd agree with that i grew up in a, a medical family my dad was a you know a doctor my mum was a nurse my brother's now a trauma surgeon and yes yeah, so around the dinner table sometimes the humor could be quite dark but very funny and uh, i think that's something that i still use to this day is it almost comes across as perhaps sometimes a little bit roguish, but it's a way of dealing, perhaps a bit non-PC at times, if I'm being honest, but in you know, but in the privacy of one's own home, it you know, it can serve that purpose, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, we it's nice for us to be around people who maintain their sense of humour. If if someone if someone takes our energy from us or if they're always negative, they bring us down. You know, I, I was talking to a, a, a girlfriend on the phone the other day. And I felt so bad after speaking to her. I thought, oh, golly, I'm going to have to leave it, you know, another another, another couple of months before I talk to her because, she, you know, it, otherwise she just she just brings me down. So we have to, sometimes we have to learn to self-manage, you know, our relationships with other people as well as, as self-managing ourselves. So going back to cognitive fitness for a minute, you, you've identified, if I got it right, three key pillars, flexibility, agility and strength. Is that right? Yeah, those are those are if you like the three pillars of cognitive fitness, uh, and then there are then there are things that sit under the underneath those. Yeah. And I was wondering then, what would you say? You know, you do a lot of authentic leadership. You've got a, a program on that. What can leaders and managers do to build more cognitive fitness within their teams without giving away the, the house? <laughs> well, you know, leadership has to start with self awareness. It has to start with self-awareness and, as I said before, learning to lead ourselves so other people choose to follow. Um, sometimes we notice other people's behaviour and that can teach us something about ourselves. We really do need to be reflective and, you know, emotionally mature to understand how to um, self-coach so we can learn things about ourselves. Everything is an opportunity to learn something about ourselves. 
and and sometimes that will be useful for us in our dealings with other people but it will always be useful for us in our dealings with ourselves um so i think the most important thing is um self-awareness which is a lifelong journey whether you do it daily uh, and you think about what's gone well what hasn't gone well during the day whether you do a gratitude diary whether you just you know think about um how the, your preparation for a meeting went whether there's anything that you know perhaps you you need to do differently uh, tomorrow or next week i think everything starts with self awareness and we we talk about it sort of glibly but it it's 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 not always easy it, it, it's about i think it's about having an attitude an attitude of learning that's generous and of course it's 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 a well-known saying you know people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care so i think compassion is so important for leaders not just in these times but all the time you know when we know and it comes back to the very nicely back to what we were talking about earlier on when you know that someone's got your back and they genuinely care then you'll go the extra mile for them whether you're a leader or whether you're a follower no, I think you're absolutely right with that. And, you know, I say whether we're a leader or a follower, we are, of course, both. Yes, definitely. So that's great, isn't it? It's actually not about what, you know, it starts with what we said there. It starts with self-awareness. So if we want our teams to be better, we have to be better. If we want our teams to, to improve or change their behaviour, we have to improve and change our behaviour. And it starts with that awareness of that behaviour. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Whilst being loving and forgiving and supportive and all of those other things, you know, we've, 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 we've already spoken about. Yeah, absolutely. Fiona, what would be your, if you had to give one tip to somebody to improve their, say, their resilience, um, what would that be? Breathe. Just remember to keep breathing. Remember to look up. Remember to look around. And remember that, that, that life is a gift and then you'll feel better. And if people wanted to connect with you and, and continue a conversation, learn more, where, where can we find you? Oh, yeah, I'd be delighted. I've got a profile on LinkedIn. And my email address is on there. If people want to get in touch with me, I would be absolutely delighted. Um, I've got a Twitter. I've got a Twitter account. The the way I, I use my Twitter account possibly slightly differently to other people. When I come across something that is interesting um, or it could be useful for research, then I tend to tweet it. So if people you know want to follow me, that's 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 absolutely fine. I'd be delighted. Um, I tend not to tweet sort of personal opinions so much as bits and pieces that I'd like to keep for future reference. So uh, you know I might not be using it. In in the right way but that's that's the way i use it so. fantastic well it's been an absolute pleasure i'm really interesting talking to you uh, today i think there's so many things that um we can take from that i've already made several notes um i'm going to be interested to look up a bit more about parts work as well so and i think what you talked about earlier about maybe having a mastermind group or considering a mastermind group or coach i think that's a really interesting takeaway that we should we, we might want to reflect on because we aren't alone you know no man is an island and actually i think we could we might all do better if we had some you know either a coach or maybe a mastermind group to lean on like you said yeah it's been absolutely privileged to talk to you thank you very much again for your time and good luck and I hope to speak to you again in the future it's been a privilege thank you very much Anthony.
Thanks for listening to today's episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. It only takes a moment, but it makes a massive difference to the visibility of the show and how many people we can reach. You know, our mission is to help people develop the mental fitness so that they can achieve more than they thought themselves capable of. So it'd be great if you could do that. A big thanks to Charlotte Foster Podcast for her hard work on producing the show. You can connect with her on LinkedIn. And the music for show is Where to Run by Strength to Last, created by the musical talents of Adrian Walther, a Canadian living in Nashville. Check out his music on Spotify and YouTube Music. Music.